to uh, week two of our podcast, MHBC Book Club, where we're taking a look at Dane Ortland's book um, as uh, we look at what it means to see Jesus as gentle and lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and for sufferers. Um, I'm Connor Alford, and I'm your host. With Ryan Von Cannell. We're excited to be with you guys again this week. Um, Ryan, as we kind of come into chapter two, give me some first impressions, kind of what is chapter two about, and then what were some thoughts that you had about chapter two? So I, I really felt like chapter two was just kind of the outflow of chapter one. Um, we could almost say chapter one was maybe the theory of kind of what motivates Jesus, that he's gentle and lowly. Uh, and then in chapter 2, Ortland kind of takes us, um, really points us to the Gospels and, and shows different instances uh, where we see this. We see, as the title is called, His Heart in Action. Um, so I thought it was good. I really thought it was just closely connected with chapter 1 as he kind of fleshed some of those things out. What were your thoughts about it? I thought it was really good. Um, you know, when you look at this, at, at basically the scripture that he has, that he's kind of working off of, it's Matthew fourteen fourteen, And I think it's always important that we read these scriptures, not just simply that one verse, but that that passage in light of the entire text of scripture that is kind of coming in. And so we're looking at Matthew when Jesus feeds 5,000 people in Matthew 14. It begins in verse 13, but it says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is over. Send the crowds away, and go into the villages, and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You need to give them something to eat. And so... I believe Ortland, what he's really doing here is he's talking about the compassion of Jesus that he had for the crowds, for those people first in, in healing them, but also in a desire to simply see them fed. And really what we're going to see in this chapter is how Jesus uh, so deeply and desperately desires to uh, deal with the sick and the hurting, uh, but also we see how even the smallest of details of the fall of man, even that hunger that we see in this passage that he's, he's attempting to deal with those things and help with those things. And, and it really speaks to his heart in action, which is compassion. So I think it's a, gr- it's a great chapter. Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, it is really important to, to read these verses that Ortland references. One thing I noticed as we read that, I really noticed it earlier because I did the same thing before I read the chapters. I read this kind of passage. One thing that stuck out to me, and it's, uh, is really the context of the passage. And obviously we know context is so important to understanding a biblical passage, and oftentimes it helps us find the meaning. But also context kind of can kind of help us color in that meaning and get a more full picture of what's going on. Right. And so we see the compassion of Jesus in this passage, that he has compassion on these crowds. But it's interesting where Jesus is, that it says that he withdrew from there, uh, in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And, and Jesus went to, to be by himself in a desolate place because of what's just happened. And what's just happened is really two things right before this. One, Jesus has gone to Nazareth, his, his hometown, and he's preached the gospel there and kind of announced that he is the Messiah. And his 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 people, his hometown, his family rejected him to the point they even tried to to kill him. And so he had to flee there And immediately after that, he hears, as it says in verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, the this is that Jesus has just heard of the death 
of John the Baptist, one of his close friends, a family member of his. So you can kind of imagine what Jesus is going through. He's just been rejected by his friends and family and then immediately hears of the death of, of a friend of his, someone that was dear to him. So you can kind of imagine the struggle that Jesus is going through. And, and really, I, I imagine he wanted to go to a desolate place to be by himself and to mourn. Um, and even in that, all these crowds find him. And I know how I would react in that situation. And it wouldn't be to be compassionate towards these people. But we see that's not what Jesus does. And so I think that kind of helps us really even kind of see even to a greater extent, a greater depth, his compassion that he has for, for sinners and for sufferers. Right. You know, I think when you look at this passage, it, you know, I think about in my own life how if I had just lost one of my best friends and um, if I'd lost one of my best friends and also had my family really speak out against me, uh, I would have I'd have struggled there. And, and I don't know that I would have reacted in the same way that Jesus did. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think necessarily it was a it was a so we have to kind of dissect that because it wasn't a bad thing that Jesus was going to be by himself. Uh, but even in the middle of all that, he was willing to, to um, he, he was going to withdraw and to mourn well, to spend time with the Lord. But even in that, he, he allowed those interruptions of, of people who were stepping into his life, realizing that, that they're not really interruptions, they're, they're, there's ministry. And so he was, he was keen on, on doing that. That's a, that's a great observation. Um, when we look at this passage, we start to kind of dissect here on page 25. Uh, what we see Jesus claim is uh, you know, on page 25, that very first sentence. What we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew 11:25, 25, we see him prove with his actions time and time again in the four Gospels. And so Jesus claim, I'm gentle and lowly. Uh, we see that he is alleviating poverty and difficulty and sickness throughout all of his works. If you look, I'm kind of highlighting the last sentence of each of these paragraphs because they summarize. It says, The leper was asking about Jesus' deepest desire, and Jesus revealed his deepest desire by healing him. And then, so Jesus uh, has a deep desire to heal. Uh, you look at that next paragraph, it says, Before they could open their mouths to ask for help, Jesus couldn't stop himself. Words of reassurance and calm tumbled out. So Jesus was speaking encouragement and he was healing. And then he was simply seeing the, the helplessness of the throngs and his pity unites there. And so, uh, so often we see Jesus and, and the outworking of what he's done. And I think sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, it's easy to just get task-oriented without coloring these passages with Jesus' heart from Matthew 11, which I think is an incredible fault because I know that I don't normally do that. When I'm reading through this, I'm, I'm thinking about the actions of Jesus and their historical significance, but I catch myself, Ryan, often not thinking about Jesus and his heart in these things. And so I think that's a helpful way for us to, to I guess, no better word is to color it, to, to look at Jesus through the lens of his compassion for other people, for his disposition and his heart, for the gentle and the lowly to come to him. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that's so closely his motivations and his desires. They are tied in with who he is and what he's done and what that means for us. One way that kind of stuck out to me is you see Ortland mentions a couple different times this idea that, um, that Jesus is gentle and lowly and he can't help but act you know, act that out towards sinners and sufferers. He says on 25, he cannot act any other way. His life proves his heart. He says to the top of the, the next page that Jesus couldn't, couldn't stop himself in regards to, to healing the paralyzed man. 
And really, if we want to do a little bit of theology here, you know, that's just, you know, kind of the immutability of God. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a big theological word that means God is unchanging. He is who he is, and he is always that way. As Millard Erickson, the great theologian, would say, he would call that the constancy of God, that God is constant, that Jesus is always gentle and lowly. He's always been gentle and lowly, and he will always be gentle and lowly towards us. Um, so you can kind of see those things tied in together. You know, that's a really good point because I, I think sometimes we think about Jesus very much in the same way that we kind of, and, and his humanity in the same way that we relate to our own. Jesus' humanity was uncorrupted by sin, and yet ours mm-hmm. is corrupted by sin. And so when when I, I know that uh, Jesus, he is, he's, he's unchanging, he's perfect. So, so the compassion that he had yesterday, you wonder, is it going to be the compassion for today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day? Um, because I know that my compassion doesn't work that way. You know, my my compassion and how I feel about other people and how I act towards other people, you know, it, it changes often based on my mood and how my day's mm-hmm. been and how that person's treated me. Uh, but the beauty of Jesus and his constancy is that that we don't have to worry about it. The Jesus that healed those who were sick, that fed those who were hungry, is the same Jesus who looks at us the exact same way today in compassion and grace. And so uh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, so um, as he kind of gets going more into the chapter, he spends a significant amount of time kind of talking about this balance between um, kind of the wrath and the mercy or the love of of Christ. Anything stick out to you from uh, from that section, kind of pages 28 through 30-ish? Yeah, you know, um, I, I thought, in, in all honesty, it was it just, for those who are listening with us today, I thought it was a little bit confusing. Um, you know, that the, the, he really, on page 29, he makes three real statements there. He says, first, the wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with one another, like a seesaw, one diminishing to the degree that the others held up. And I, I agree with this. I believe that, that they do, as he says, rise and fall together. Um, and so when we understand the, the wrath of God because of sin, the, the more we understand and comprehend the depth and the sheer size of the wrath of God for those who have sinned, the more we understand and enjoy and know the true mercy that Christ has. And so I didn't have a problem with that point. But then I started to look at that second point. It says, in speaking specifically of the heart of Christ and the, la- and the heart of God in the Old Testament, we're not really on the, ma- on the wrath-mercy spectrum anyway. His heart is His heart. And when we speak of Christ's heart, we're not so much speaking of one attribute alongside others. We're asking who he most deeply is, what pours out of him most naturally. And so, you know, I, I understand that. I get what he's saying to a certain extent. Um, but I kind of struggle with that statement. What about you? I was kind of the same way. That kind of second comment he makes, it, it just really, I, I had a hard time trying to figure out what exactly he was saying there. I do like what you said about his first comment he makes when he, you know, talks about the seesaw, that that's not the way God's wrath and um, and, and love and mercy kind of work. And, and as you kind of laid it out, it's this idea that you have to understand the bad news before you even understand what the good news is and, and why that's even good news. Um, I do think to some extent, though, I mean, what most naturally flows out of Jesus, it is the fact that he's gentle and lowly towards sinners and sufferers. We see that, and, and Ortland gives us a number of, of examples of that in the Gospels. But we do see other examples in the Gospels of, of the wrath of Jesus. 
And I think what's interesting in those examples is they're often not directed towards sinners. Well, I say that. We're all sinners. They are so. They are directed towards sinners. But most of the time, the wrath of Jesus is usually kind of directed inward at the church or at the people of faith. We could um, kind of think of the Pharisees, kind of the religious PhDs of the day, that oftentimes Jesus' wrath was directed towards them because they had gotten gotten it all wrong and, and were... Um, had kind of missed the point and missed Jesus and missed the Messiah. And so we do see the wrath of Jesus come out of him at times, um, but it's not necessarily directed at those who are lost. Um, and so I think that's kind of interesting. I think in some ways Ortland kind of neglects that a little bit. I think he does too, yeah. Um, I think you have to have a really well-rounded view of who of who Jesus is through, through the Scriptures. And I'm not saying that Ortland doesn't. I also think that Ortland, if we're going to talk about kind of his methodology for the book, uh, you know, we, and so for the sake of this podcast, for anyone who's watching or listening, you, you know, you have to, um, you have to eat the fish and leave the bones. I know that's a really raw statement, but mm-hmm. in essence, when, when you disagree with something, um, th- there, there are a couple possibilities. It could be that, um, that you disagree with something and you're wrong and you need to change. It could be that you disagree with something and that other individual is wrong and they they that and, and so there's a need for change in what they've wrote or what they've spoken. But there's also a very real possibility, especially when we look at writing, that no one is a perfect communicator and he might just been a little bit unclear. And so I think there's times throughout this that, that Ortland really in his writing, you know, I I think that he assumes his readers are gonna understand the wrath of God. I don't know that that's a great assumption. Uh, but I think he's really trying to hone in on the point of gentle and lowly. And, and really, mm-hmm. even before he gets to this section on, on love and, uh, and on the heart of Christ, he talks about how we can't have a lopsided view of who Jesus is. He says in the page prior, he says, Some of uh, us may be raised in a rules-heavy environment that suffocated us with an endless sense of not measuring up. We're drawn especially to the grace and mercy of Christ because we didn't grow up in that. And so we're drawn to this image of Jesus and his grace. And then there's some of us who grew up in a really chaotic world. And so because of that, we love the the rule following of Jesus and how we can be structured. And then there's others who've been deeply mistreated uh, by people who are supposed to protect us. And so we love that justice element of God. But the truth of, of all this, it's interesting that Ortland says these things, but when I read it in this chapter, I think we have to take the whole book into account. I don't know that he's concise to do that in this chapter sometimes. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when we look at that, Jesus' heart is for sinners. But I think there's a sense in which we read this and, um, it, you know, to say that, that, that the heart of Christ is not on the wrath-mercy scale um, spe- or, or the wrath-mercy spectrum, I think that's kind of a... Um, I, that, that's kind of, I think it's kind of unclear he needed to unpack that a little bit more is what I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that you pointed out, you know, we've seen kind of throughout history and throughout scholarship, oftentimes we kind of read ourselves into who we think Jesus is and what we think of Jesus. You know, if you're someone um, who has grown up in a rules-heavy environment, then like you said, you're going to kind of lean towards that other side of that. And so we have to recognize our own kind of biases and and kind of what presuppositions we bring to, to God's Word and to Jesus and be careful of that um, to make sure we kind of understand Jesus, um, how the gospel and how God's Word presents Him, uh, not kind of be reading things into who He is. 
I do really like, though, as he kind of starts moving into the love of Jesus. And again, this is where context is so important in understanding kind of biblical ideas and people and, and places and things. And he kind of talks about this context of, of the Old Testament categories of, of clean and unclean. Mm. And, and I'm, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this about kind of the Levitical law. And there were so many things that would, would make you uh, unclean, not in the sense of, you know, that you have dirt or grime on you, but that you are kind of ceremonially unclean. And there are things you need to do to, to be clean again, that you would have to offer sacrifices and do so in a specific way. Um, and I like that he points out to consider Jesus that in these kind of Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. And so when we hear that, our initial thought would be, wow, we can't measure up to that at all, which we can't. We can't do that. But our thought would be that, that Jesus wouldn't want to be around us. He wouldn't want to be around us who are unclean so that we would then make him unclean. But as Ortland points out, in a typical situation, that's what would happen. If a clean person came in contact with an unclean person, that clean person would then also be made unclean. But it's the exact opposite with Jesus. The very last sentence of the, the first paragraph of 31, when Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. And, and really, that's like a miracle. And, and I love that Jürgen Moltmann quote. He points out, you know, the great German scholar um, about kind of this, the, that a miracle, which is, which is what this is. Um, and, and so much of what Jesus did in his ministry are, are not interruptions of the natural order, but they are the natural order. That is kind of the true creation. Um, so I love that, that he right. points that out. So as Jesus is walking on the earth and as Jesus is healing people, we, we think of that as an abnormality, as something that's abnormal, you know, and, and and in a sense, miraculous, because we tend to think of that which is miraculous as abnormal. But Jesus is actually restoring the the world in his place to the state that it was meant to be, one of cleanliness and one of wholeness and one of uh, and one of health and not sickness. And so as he's pushing back the forces of darkness, as he's pushing back the effects of the fall of man and the sin and the corruption because of that, Jesus is actually not doing that which is abnormal, but which is normal, that which is what always was supposed to be, how, how life was supposed to be lived. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty incredible truth. Um, I, I love when he says, you know, you talk about Maltman, and he, he basically on page 31, he says, We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Uh, to think about that Christ came into the world to interrupt the interruption, to deal with that interruption, to uh, to push back on the forces of evil and darkness in the world. It's a pretty powerful and incredible truth. So uh, that statement that Moltmann has that he quotes there is worth meditating and thinking on for sure. Yeah, and really these these miracles, and even, even today we see them, and, and we even see it in, in the... Um, I mean, just the example of a sinner being made alive through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's really like an inbreaking of home and what true creation looks like. It'd be what Walker Percy, the, you know, the great Louisiana author, would call kind of signposts in a strange land. That we live in this fallen creation, this strange land, and these different things, the life of Jesus and God's Word and miracles and people being made alive again are kind of signposts that point us to what reality really is like and what um, kind of really what home is really like and what the new creation will be like when Jesus returns. Hmm. G- on the top of page 32, for all of our listeners, if you have your book out, I want you to, to, to read this and highlight this. But if, if you're just listening, then just listen 
tight here. Uh, at the top of page 32, he says, Jesus walked the earth, rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. Why? Because his heart refused to let him sleep in. Sadness confronted him in every town. So wherever he went, whenever he was confronted by pain and longing, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. And so we see that in Jesus, that, that his deep desire as in, in his coming to the earth was to cleanse that which was impure and to mend that which was broken. And I find that just an incredible truth. And yeah. it's the same today, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how he ends, isn't it? Yeah, that this idea, and it's, I mean, it's one of, to me, it's one of the craziest ideas in, in the, and in really in all of Scripture, especially the New Testament, is when we see Jesus talking and he says, you know, he reminds his disciples that it would be better for him to go um, and for them to receive the Spirit. And, and it's just crazy to think about that. It's, it's better for us to have Christ's Spirit within us than, than if, if Jesus were sitting right here in this room doing this podcast mm-hmm. with us. But that's the truth, um, that, that God is working in us through His Spirit, that He's still gentle, gentle and lowly towards us um, through His Spirit. And so I love that kind of that high note He ends on, this great truth that um, kind of those italicized words on 33, Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Hmm. Man, that's a, that's a great word, and it's a great way to end the chapter. You know, I've, I've, I really do, before we end, I want to go back, and I think for us, you know, to just take a, just to look up from the book and to ask a question. You know, we, we talked earlier about, and I kind of want to go back around to it, that whole thought of, um, of the love and the mercy of God you know, at what point in time do we have to become well-rounded in what we say? Why, at what point in time do we introduce God's wrath and God's mercy? At what point in time do we have to do that? One of the things that Ortland, I believe, does in this book is he has a very, he has a very single vein and focus. And he's going to frame it, obviously, with, with wrath and holiness and all the other attributes of God. But... I love the fact that in this book, and it's it's on page 29, it's italicized, there's a statement that says, In short, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, or exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed. It is not easily, but it is easily neglected, forgotten. We draw too little strength from it. We are not leaving behind the harsher side to Jesus as we speak of his very heart. Our sole aim is to follow the Bible's own testimony as we tunnel into who Jesus most surprisingly is. How does that phrasing strike you? Um, really, in a lot of ways, kind of encouraging. Yeah. Um, Me too. Me that too. you know that this is who Jesus is. That he truly is gentle and lowly. Mm-hmm. That he's accessible and and humble. And and I don't wonder if, if one reason we have a hard time reading about it with you know and, and feeling is almost if we're neglecting God's wrath is because we have such a hard time believing it that that yeah. Jesus really could be that way towards us. Truly knowing who we are and all that we've done, um, knowing all our sins, everywhere we've fallen short, everywhere we've missed the mark. Um, and, and still be that way towards us. That's so hard to believe at times. And so I think that's why maybe we struggle with this a little bit. You know, I, I, I completely agree with you. We do, we struggle so often to understand the element of God's love. And, you know, we want to be very careful to, um, in, in our teaching and in our study of God's Word, to, to be able to look at, at God's love full in the face. 
like just understanding who he is and his desire and his love for us and to understand that that the amount that you talk about Christ affectionate heart you you can never exhaust all that it is mm-hmm. like that's a that's a beautiful truth that you can talk about it for the rest of your life how God loves sinners how God cares for sinners how Jesus came for those who were broken and he, he came to uh, as as one gentle and lowly there there is no exhaustion of that truth if you were to talk about it every day every minute of the rest of your life you would not exhaust the the beauty of that truth and so I think it's it's okay for us to take some time and to focus on one of the qualities of God here mm-hmm. on, on on the approachability of the of Jesus of his affectionate heart of 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 the person of Jesus in a sense so yeah I agree you got anything else I think I'm good, man. Uh, this was a good chapter, and mm-hmm. I'm excited to see next week. Uh, the the title of chapter is uh, pretty fascinating. The the happiness of Christ. We see that the scripture is going to be Hebrews 12:2 uh, for the joy that was set before Him. And so, uh, guys, make sure that you tune in next week as we look to that. Um, we're so excited to host this this podcast, this book study. Our prayer. Uh, whether you're watching it on uh, at, at home over your com- on your computer or whether you're listening to it in the car, our hope is that this does feel like uh, sitting around a table with a cup of coffee at, uh, at with a book club with your closest friends and family to discuss something and to process something. We also want to say that if you have questions or you have comments about this chapter or what you're reading or questions as to the next chapter or maybe you get into chapter 3 and there's some things you disagree with or you struggle with or you're trying to process, be sure to email, to text or call us and, and we'd love to introduce those into uh, what we're talking about on a weekly basis. So uh, once again, thank you for tuning in and joining us. My name is Connor. And I'm Ryan. And this is MHBC Book Club. See you guys next week.